Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. <laughs> We're doing a survey. Yeah. About. Have you met all music? Come on. Surprise! Say it's brilliant, Hey up you pop crazy youngsters and welcome to the first edition of Chart Music. My name's Al Needham and I'm coming at you from a bedroom in Nottingham somewhere. Well, somewhere is Nottingham, I don't know why I said that, that was stupid. Anyway, me and a couple of very special friends invite you to sit back, open your ears and deck a family-sized bottle of cheap pop till it all comes fizzing out of our noses. This is what the podcast's all about, basically. We take one episode of Top of the Pops every time we do it, and we just break it down until there's no more Top of the Pops to be broken. With me this week is my co-host, a Melody Maker veteran since the mid-80s, who currently writes for The Guardian and The Daily Mash, amongst others. He's also written several books, including Future Days, Krautrock and the Building of Modern Germany. David Stubbs. How are you, David? No, I'm fine. Thank you very much. Very good, very good. I understand you've written another book as well now. Yeah, this one's, yeah, about a little more so I tossed off. Um, 1996 and the end of history. It's just a few little sort of cultural sort of essays um, regarding the year 1996, which of course is 20 years ago from various perspectives. Comedic, musical, political, sporting, and so on. Internet? A bit about the internet, yeah, which was fledgling, yeah. Massive yeah, machines that cost about 1,800 quid and had about 60 oh. megabytes of storage. Yeah. Oh, yes. The, the, yeah. the good old days. IRC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember yeah. that? Um, no. No, actually, I came out on 1997, actually. So, um, uh, lightweight. Uh, lightweight. Newbet, yeah, exactly. as we, yeah, as we yeah, used yeah. to say back Newbet. in the day. Newbet, yes. Also in attendance is Sarah B., a recovering music journalist who occasionally stops cursing for long enough to write a children's book. She started writing about music at Melody Maker and maintains that its closure in 2000 had nothing to do with her. Most recently, she's been gobbing off on the Big Mouth podcast. Sarah, how are you? Hello. I'm not too bad, thank you. I have become one of those people who drinks coconut water, so I'm very well hydrated. Nice one. What's the benefit of coconut water? It does. It hydrates all It, it hydrates all, all of your bits from, you know, oh. it's really, it's really, uh, it's, it's really good. Don't water do that? Um, not like this does. I don't know what it is. And like I said, there is some shame in this. You know, I don't want to be one of those people. I drank tree sap the other day as well. Not from the tree, but you can get it in bottles. Yeah, in, in, that, in that London you can. It's not 1996 anymore. Mm, yes, fair enough, yes. We've discovered something wetter than water, fair enough. So, Top of the Pops. Why are we talking about it, David? Oh, Top of the Pops. Um, to me... It's a symbol of the 20th century. It's a symbol of the um, extinction of pop, really. I don't think that 
pop exists anymore as such. You've got the charts, you've got music that is popular, or at least brought in some music that's brought in larger quantities of some sort than other music, but you don't have pop. You don't have that kind of, that once a week sliver of the sublime and the ridiculous that, um, that you, it was captured in the 70s, you know, in the 1970s. Really, I suppose I'm looking at the 70s as the heyday, maybe the 1980s to a degree and sort of with diminishing weekly returns thereafter. Um, I think it, you know, really it's something you understand fully if, like me, you know, you are maybe about sort of, oh, I don't know, late 40s, early 50s, even that kind of age. And mm. it was, it was all that there was. It really was. It was all there was of any kind. I mean, people thinking, you know, we, well, it, certainly in the 60s, people mostly were not swinging. And in the 70s, it wasn't at all supersonic for most people. You're mostly living in the kind of like the hand-me-downs culturally of the 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, and in terms of the schedules, this is the one little 30 minutes and it wasn't even all that 30 minutes because a lot of Top of the Pops is rubbish of course and mm. um, in which you've got uh, as we'll discover yeah, just sort of morsels of tinsel just some sort of little glam gobbit um, of you know some sort of hint at um, a possibility of a life that might be something that was um, you know had a little bit of kind of sort of you know, sort of sex and gusto and tinsel and whatever about it. And that was all there was, you know, Dave Hill's top hat, you know, just a, a little glimpse of that, you know, had to keep you going all week. So top of the pops, in case you're a child or you're an American uh, or you're just ignorant, it was launched on BBC One on January the 1st, 1964, and it ran almost every week right up to July 2006. Uh, it was a chart show, basically, the top... Top 30, then the top 40. Uh, the original ground rules for the show went something like this. The only single allowed to be played every week was the number one. No singles dropping down the charts were allowed on. The highest new entry and the highest climber would be automatically included. And the show always ended with the number one single. So it very quickly became the shop window for the pop world. And it regularly pulled in upwards of 15 million viewers a week at its peak in the 70s and 80s. And it was the indication to any new bands and artists that they had officially won at life. Sarah, you're younger than us. What did it mean to you? My first memories of Top of the Pops, I think, are from about 1983 or four. So I would have been four or five. Um, uh-huh. And I do, in the 80s, it kind of settled into, I think it moved around the schedules a bit, but it did settle into a kind of Thursday Thursday evening slot. And to this day, I still get a little kind of sparkly, twinkly feeling of positivity on a Thursday just because, and it's because of Top of the Pops. It's not because the weekend is approaching. I've been freelance basically the whole time. So, you know, like weekends, weekends are nothing to me. Weekends are the time when I actually catch up on my work. But Thursday was, you would sort of glide from, you know, you'd come home from school and you'd have something to look forward to. And it was just like a a great snapshot of, of music. It was like a compressed sort of bubble um, of, of what was, what was going on. And there was a sort of, um, what they would, you know, the, what, what people would say now is a sort of gamification because you would sort of guess at, at, you know, who was up and who was down. And, you know, I mean, like you're saying, it's very brutal, isn't it? It's like no one who is going down is allowed on. It's like, Oh, it's, it's like, it's like life, isn't it? It's like, you know, if you're not, if you're not flavor, flavor of the week right now, then you're nowhere. But it was a very, yeah, it was a very intense hit of kind of glamour and, um, kind of weirdness and, um, you know, and then a lot of it was just, you know, incredibly banal and, and, uh, like how, how have these guys got on there? But, um, yeah, it was like, that was when you were a kid, you know, growing up with it, 
that's where you got that and the you know on the, the actual the chart show on the radio on a Sunday that was where you got all of your it's where you got your your pop from I was just going to say that um, yes I'll just echo what Sarah said um just in terms of how much you took it to heart and I mean I used to keep a little exercise book each week in which I'd um jot down you know very meticulously um each week the um new entrance if 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 it was a, you know if, if something had gone up it was entered in green felt tip if something had gone down in the charts red felt tip if it held its position gray felt tip um i would do that every single week and i read it and i do and i i, I was kind of as obsessed really i took it as to heart the way i take football to heart nowadays in my old age you know arsenal or whatever you know so i remember being absolutely devastated when dawn in 1973 managed to help uh, hold off Sweet's Hellraiser, which you know, held at number two. And I thought, and I realised, you know, I just I, I knew long enough that if if Sweet were going to get to number one, it was going to have to be that week. If they held at number two, I knew that the way the trajectories worked, the charts, that was the chance. It was not that week. It wasn't going to be next week. And so it came to be. I was on holiday at the time. Oh, I was on holiday. I was about, um, let me think, I was about 10 I was on holiday in Wales, and it, you know, it put a cloud. Well, I was on holiday in Wales, so loads of clouds in a holiday, but that casts another metaphorical cloud to match the actual clouds of a Welsh holiday. <laughs> because the first Top of the Pops I ever watched would have been about 1974, 1973, when I was like, when I was about five, and uh, my dad wouldn't let me watch Top of the Pops. He was one of those. He was one of those people where you know you have people who uh, families that that refuse to let the kids watch ITV. My dad was the other way, um, and on Thursday nights he that would he would deliberately pick that night to have his bath in front of the fire. Still had a tin bath, one of those old houses, and he'd sit there in his bath and watch Emmerdale Farm. So, and this was when Emmerdale Farm was about a farm. This is yeah. pre mass deaths and sex and all that kind of stuff. It was the early seventies. That kind of stuff didn't happen. So anyway, I would go round to my mate's house. And he was called Tony Bones, and his mum would allow me to watch Top of the Pops. So before we go any further, I just want to say that this podcast and all the podcasts afterwards will always be dedicated to Tony Bones' mum in Ice and Green Nottingham. Thank you, Doc. Tony Bones' mum. We've talked about when we started watching. When did we stop watching Top of the Pops? Um, I don't know. I think it sort of petered out. I mean, I can't believe it's 2006, so it's 10 years since it's been off the air. I mean, yeah. they do, they have a Christmas special every year, which um, which I, I don't watch. Which isn't. <laughs> no, it's not very special. But uh, I don't know, it's sort of petered out sometime in the in the, in the the noughts, I think. I, I kind of held out for, you know, almost uh, for, for a long time. But then I just, it, it, it hadn't been a part of my life for, for a while, I suppose. Um so I can't can't really remember when I lost interest, but obviously the charts have been changing in the meantime, and it just became less exciting. And of course, because I have, um, you know, I may not be as old as you, but I still qualify as a curmudgeon at this point, I think. And, uh, you know, you do, you get curmudgeonly, but you go, oh, all these new, or what are they doing there? They're not even, they, they can't, they can't even do what they're doing. So, you know, that's, that's kind of how it's, how it's gone for me. David? Yes, I, I, I would echo that curmudgeon point. Um, because when I used to watch it in the 70s, you know, my granddad would get infuriated. I remember he saw, because um, sometimes he'd, you know, be doing the babysitting thing. I remember he saw Roy Wood out Wizard doing See My Baby Jive, and he just got absolutely enraged by the kind of hairy appearance of this bloke. He said, if he turned up at the RAF like that, he'd get seven days jankers, he would. Seven days jankers. And cry. I have to go and work out what jankers were, but... Uh, <laughs> um, that was... 
that was the first episode I I remember watching mm. because that was the one where uh, I can remember a schoolgirl being on the stage and a, a gorilla coming out of nowhere and carrying her off, and I really fancied the the schoolgirl. Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't until years later I realised it was the bassist or something like that dressed up. Confusing mm. times, early seventies, yeah. weren't they, David? But you thought it was an actual primate of some sort, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, there was that as well. But, you know, thinking that a, a massive bloke, probably mm. with a moustache, was qualified as a, I don't know, as a 14-year-old girl, mm. you know, mm. that was but, but I that think was what me, I was more concerned about. But for me, the... Um, so then, obviously, my granddad was all about, you know, you can't tell the girls from the boys or whatever. I think I stopped watching when you could tell the girls from the boys, and that's like my mm. kind of beef with my daughter now. It's, like, it's rubbish. You can tell the girls from the boys. The sudden heteronormativeness of it, you know, Britpop, et cetera, et cetera, you know. That's when something died for me. So, basically, I think we're all in agreement that Topper Pop's dead important and worth talking about. So let's take one episode from the lucky bag of randomness and, uh, and, and and see what we get out of it. This week, we're doing July the 14th, 1977. Very important year, 1977, so we've been told. Well, all years are important in many ways. They are, yeah. But musically, you know, it's seen, 1977 seen as here, you know, here comes punk. And... Yeah. Um, here comes Donald. Here comes punk. Here comes Donna Summer. Yes, exactly. Yes. So in the news on this day, Somalia declares war on Ethiopia. The Labour government are arguing with the TUC again. There's just been a 25-hour blackout in New York. Dave Sexton's just become the new manager of Man United, and Don Reeves quit England to manage the United Arab Emirates. But the big news on this very day, on the cover of the Daily Mirror. The Sex Pistols <laughs> appear on Top of the Pops. Daily Mirror headline, Top of the Punks. This is a huge deal, isn't it? Ah, witty stuff. That's why they get the big bucks, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I see, uh, I do see what they did there. Everybody at the time knew about the Sex Pistols, but if you were like my age, which was nine at the time, you'd never actually seen them. I didn't have a big brother with a, an expansive record collection. So I, I knew next to ask all about the Sex Pistols, apart from what I've been told in the Sunday papers every week. And what, what the Sunday papers were telling me was not good. They were not decent sorts. Did you have a sort of view of them then as these like cartoon goblins or sort of creatures that have crawled out of, you know, that not quite human? All I knew was what the newspapers told me and, and what, um, what my, my mates at school told me. It was, and, you know, it, it was it was really strange because here you have this band who are you know, the most talked-up band since, I don't know, the Bay City Rollers, you didn't know one lick of their tunes unless you were you were older. I mean, for, at the time, I was 14, 15, but I didn't really understand the idea of punk was the moment that cleaved rock history in two and, you know, from between modern and postmodern, etc. like that. It was really just the sort of triumph of a sort of juvenile delinquency, really. I mean, it was the kind of the kids who were normally in detention somehow kind of having a breakout. I do remember one time there was a kid called Kevin, Kevin Burke, and um, he was in these little flares or whatever, and he had a, he had a, um, he had a little safety pin that he'd somehow kind of fashioned right mm. into his nostril, and it was kind of kind of cakey from where it had been bleeding. And he went and knocked on oh, the staffroom door at our school, and like the French master, old Big Bill, Mr Brooks, he opened the door, and Kevin Burke shouted, Punk rock! And waved his fist at him and then ran off. And I think that was the essence, you know. That, to me, that spoke to the essence of punk. Anarchy. It was anarchy, yeah. So, what else was on telly on this night, July the 14th, 1977? Well, ITV are halfway through an episode of Get Some In. Ah, yes. Sarah, get, 
Get some in, you wouldn't know this, would you? Get some in. I don't know. That's a. You can imagine that kind of being, um, you know, somebody coming out with that in a in a in a in a very long meeting at Channel Four or BBC Three or something. Going, God, what can we do? Get some in. So what? What in? I I I can only be disappointed by what get some in actually was. David, get some in. Yes, I suppose it was. You know, they, they probably hoped it would have some sort of layer of connotation like that. But what you were getting in was your national service. It was oh. set um, in the RAF in the late nineteen fifties. It starred. Tony Selby as the kind of as as the sergeant, I think, or was he the corporal, the sergeant? Anyway, the the um, sergeant major bastard yeah, yeah, yeah. type. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, and it actually featured Robin Robert Lindsay in one of his earliest roles. Actually, he was a teddy boy who had mm. his kind of um, his, his his DA Sean as he had to kind of enter service uh, for a few years. Um, never really didn't quite. It was a stab at dad's army, wasn't it? Really? Yeah, oh. it was a kind of poor man. I mean, in a way, it was a poor man's it ain't half hot mum, you know. So that's a pretty mm. poor man. But it's a good, it's a good title. I will, I will take solace in that. You know, maybe, maybe it's, uh, maybe it can be recycled into something more exciting now. Yeah, or something pornographic. Or, or something pornographic. Yeah. <laughs> BBC Two is showing part fourteen of having a baby, and asking why they cry for no reason and how to get them to shut up. Fourteen part series. Wow. Why they cry for no reason? Because they're, they're bastards. How do you get them to shut up saying, you're a little bastard? And, of course, BBC One is just finishing an episode of something called The Whole Universe Show, which was essentially Cosmos without the budget. So it's in the kind of like Tomorrow's World slot, which was a, a perennial um, thing before Top of the Pops. Oh, yeah, I love Tomorrow's World. Yeah, it was great. They were all so excited about what was going on. Look at this thing that may or may not exist. I mean, they got it right. I think once a series, they would get something right that would yeah. actually, that like, you know, um, something that we have now. And it's like, look, Tomorrow's World predicted this. And, and the rest of it was just just kind of happy nonsense. Hoverboards and whatnot. But it was, yeah, why have we got hoverboards yet? Mm, yeah, it was proper hoverboards. I don't mean those little wheelie things. They don't hover. Oh, do they're they? crap, aren't they? No, we need actual hoverboards. Mm. And we've got Skype, and that was kind of something we were vaguely hoping for. But um, you know, telephones mm. with with pictures. But um, but top of the pops. It was always appropriate that Top Tops came after Tomorrow's World because, um, you know, as you mentioned Dave Hill and his top hat, here was Tomorrow's World today, the future for you right now in a nutshell. But um, but no, there was always this terrible, terrible wait, though, because um, and I suppose I could have looked at the grandfather clock, but there's the, the countdown of the items. And I thought, please, please, let it be 7.30, let it be 7.30, and then an item would finish. And then um, and finally Raymond Bax would come on and do the ling. And now here's Judith Hamm yeah. with the washing machine of 1980. Oh, God. You know, and it's just like, oh, yeah. please, time, time, press on. Yeah, we, we, don't, we don't want the future. We yeah, want yeah, now. Yeah, pretty much. Now. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> The following few are feeling fine because they're this week's Top of the Pops. We have the fifth and best Top of the Pops theme, which is a cover of Whole Lot of Love by Led Zeppelin, which was recorded by CCS, the Collective Consciousness Society, in 1970. We're not arguing about this, are we? This is the best Top of the Pops theme ever. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you you hesitated, Sarah. I did hesitate, but that's because you know, in in my brain, I have that uh, whatever whatever jangly nonsense there was that that kind of made me run into the lounge and go, oh, it's top of the pops in the eighties. That was kind it of yellow pearl, the Ding. one that goes. Yeah, probably that that's probably like deeper in my brain than you know. But no, this is no, you are you are correct, sir. It's because the other option is. 
which is that's not that's not, not Johnny Dankworth or something. That's you know, it's not good. Yeah, and there was the um, there was the um, what's his name, wasn't it? Paul Hardcastle one. Oh yes, it um... went diddle Rubbish. That's yeah, that's anything and to And you've me. done it really good justice as well. I think you've done it more justice than it deserved in that rendition. Still rubbish. Well, yeah. yeah, thank yeah. you. So we get the um, we get the chart countdown by uh, Kid Jensen, which was pretty standard at top of the pops at the time. Where you would get the whole of the top thirty in reverse order. Yeah, spoilers. Blooming spoilers. What you you know? It's like I've seen it now. I don't need to. Uh, I don't need to know. Yet. Yeah, you could you could turn off and, and and watch the end and get some in if you wanted. Yeah, yeah. They should have had somebody warn you. Look away now if you don't want to know what's number one. They never did. No, you just they just went straight through. It's like you you've been given a menu, but then you're told you can't pick what you like and you're going to get what we give you because if you go through that, I mean, there's some there's some big names in there. There's uh, Dreams by Fleetwood Mac, Exodus, Bob Marley and the Wailers. ELO, Queen, hmm. Jacksons, Gladys hmm. Knight of the Pips, Boney M. You, you, you know, you're just rubbing your hands together thinking, oh, this is going to be a belting yeah, show. Yeah, and they all look so great, don't they? It's like when you get that bam, 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 look at all these amazing, yeah. sexy people. It's like, oh, yeah. look at yeah. them. And then, yeah, and yeah. then it's like, and now we're going to get down to the business of, of a few people that you've never heard of and we'll probably never hear of again. Yeah. His, history's jostling before you, and then it's a now jigsaw. Yeah. <laughs> so this episode is presented by Kid Jensen. Or David Jensen, as he uh, likes to be known nowadays. Uh, he was born in British Columbia in Canada, which means he's got a genuine transatlantic accent. Uh, he joined Radio Luxembourg at the age of 18, presenting the midnight prog show Dimensions. Uh, he joined Radio Trent in Nottingham in 1975, poached by Radio One a year later. And at this point in his career, he's filling in for absent DJs when they're um, going off on the road shows or whatever. He did. He did some good. He did some things and he did some other things. And he had a, his career was 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 going pretty well at the time. He certainly was. Yeah. And Kid Jensen is seen as one of those DJs of the era who kind of like he gets a bit of a free pass. Is he? he wasn't annoying. Well, yeah, he is. He is at the moment as for, well as far as we know, he is he is U tree free. But um, which is always which is always good. It, give, it just gives you. I mean, it's it's the bar is set pretty low now, isn't it? It's just like oh, I can look at him the without, bar's thrown on the floor. <laughs> without it's gone through in into the basement and then through into the sewer. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it's come to a pass when people have congratulated for not being paedophiles, basically. But yes. uh, <laughs> it's like good job. You can have a. You can you know you can you can go 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 and see the queen and she'll give you a pat on the back. Um, mm. But yeah, he was always like a, quite an inoffensive, charming sort of lad, wasn't he? Really, he's like a sort of mm. lovely golden retriever puppy with his lovely hair yeah. and his nice voice, you know. And he was, uh, and even now, it's not too grating because there was a certain way that um, there was a certain cadence that DJs had and top of the pop presenters had, you know, in the in the seventies and eighties, which was a very kind of jive ass kind of deal. Hey. And you know, he's he's not, uh, you know, watching this now. You don't cringe too hard, do you? Because it's like, it doesn't push no. that too far. It doesn't like jangle your nerves. He, he was, sin- yeah, sorry, I was going to say, he, he was sincere in his um, love of rock music, but in a kind of non-threatening way, and with a little bit of that kind of 70s slipness. I always remember, like, I, I had a tape for years of a show that he did, and I just remember at one point he said, I like anybody with a rock and roll heart, and Nick Lowe's be loud and strong. Oh, oh nice one, kid. Because he does like Nick Lowe. And Nick Lowe does have a rock and roll heart that beats Lance on. So he spoke a truth and he spoke it in a certain way. Yeah, and we are all terrible postmodern cynics now anyway. So we have to kind oh, of, you know, terrible. we have to recognise that's what we're doing and just, just, just mm, keep a little mm-hmm. bit of a lid on it. 1977 is seen as a bit of a turning point in both music and fashion. And I think Kid 
is actually is actually demonstrating this by what he's wearing. It's a it's a blue jumpsuit, pretty much, almost as if he's seen what the Clash are wearing and he likes the look of it. But he isn't quite ready to stencil hate and war or heavy duty discipline on it just yet. And also, he's got a very strong bladder. Has he? Oh, that, yes, he would. Well, he would, wouldn't he? That's, that's what you're saying. That's that's what you're saying. When one when one undertakes to wear a jumpsuit, one is saying, "I can go for hours without a piss." So, so kid has parachuted in. Yes, he must have done. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's great. Actually, it's like I was so excited to have just to have just you know come through the ceiling of the studio to bring you bring you the pop. Oh yeah, love such a wonderful thing by the real thing. Real thing formed by the Amu brothers, Chris and Eddie, in Liverpool in 1970. Originally called the Sophisticated Soul Brothers, but they changed their name after the manager noticed the Coca-Cola advert at Piccadilly Circus, which means they could have been called Cinzano or Wimper. They got signed after appearing on Opportunity Knocks. They made it to number one in 1976 with You To Me Or Everything and then got a number two with Can't Get By Without You, so they're still riding pretty high. But... As we've mentioned earlier with Don, Donna Summer, there's a bit of an elephant in the room, isn't there? Mm. Because we're talking about we're talking about punk changing everything, and at number two at the moment is is a song that is going to change even more of everything on the on the on the dance front. Yeah, well, we're talking about the sequencer here, aren't we? Yes, we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The sequencer, not the sequins, as it were. But um, yes. And yes, and of course, yes, and, and the fact that you've got the kind of the BBC, you know, the BBC orchestra. We need to talk about the miming because in the first episode of Top of the Pops, all the bands and artists mimed to the actual single. You know, they even had the presenters dropping the needle on the record during the introduction and presumably miming that. Musicians Union got pissed off about it. Um, they banned it after a couple of weeks when bands tried to play live on Top of the Pops and fell on their arses. Uh, the MU and Top of the Pops came to a compromise where all acts were recorded back in track, especially for the show, and mimed to that as long as all the musicians on the track were present. And if they weren't, in came the Top of the Pops orchestra, and um, they'd, they'd fill in. I mean, you know, from a sort of leftist standpoint and all that, if you were of that physical inclination, you think, well, you know, this is a good time, you know, the job's for the many. But the sequencer mm. is about to come along, and a bit like you know, this is the sort of thing that provoked the Luddite revolts a couple of centuries. Yeah, centuries ago. here come the um, Japanese robots to take your job away. That's right, which they kind of did. Yeah, it's like the, that was the the top of the pops sound, and uh, yeah, which is a, which is a peculiar thing, as you say, because uh, there, there was such a, a gamut of, of styles, and then you still have that that one element. Okay, we, we've got to talk about. We've got to talk about the outfits because it is the seventies and it is top of the pops. So from left to right, we have gold dungarees. Like, I don't know, very sparkly um, Rod, Jane and Freddie. Uh, we have a nice blue velvet waistcoat. Uh, we have a bloke dressed up in a leather jerkin. And then uh, we've got uh, Chris Amu, the lead singer, um, kind of like wearing seashells around his neck. And it's, it's essentially a gold Flojo top. It's the kind of thing one of Prince, Prince's knockoffs would have, would have worn in a video. Yeah. The outfits are definitely, um, are definitely more, there's more to them than, than the song itself, which is a, an, a profoundly forgettable song that kind of, mm. you know, it didn't even go in one ear and out the other. It kind of goes in one ear and then sort of gets lost on the way and goes back out the same ear, you know, mm. but no, the outfits. I mean, compared to, 
compared to things like I Feel Love, it does it does sound dated. It does it does pall quite a bit because you know, and the outfits I think promise something that the song doesn't really deliver. You know, it's mm. uh, that that kind of um, flamboyant, racy sort of you know saucy one shoulder glittery business going on. You know, you you kind of need to really bring it if that's if that's how you're presenting yourself. You need to have sort of more more sort of disco chops than these guys have, I think. Mm. Um, there's a man in the audience in a white dinner jacket and bow tie dancing with a woman like they're at a work stance and they're, they're just chatting away and completely oblivious to what's going on in the background. That's a bit offensive, isn't it? Very rude, but also I'm kind of with them, to be honest. That's probably what I would have done. But it looks, it's so cute. It looks like they're at prom. It's like, you know, and he's, I mean, yeah. I would love to know what he was saying to her. Like, you know, is it just, this isn't, this isn't so great, is it? I feel that the outfits are really, uh, you know, writing checks that the music can't cash. And maybe he was saying that like to impress her. And of course she would have been tremendously impressed by this, you know, because that's of course, what, what yeah. girls like to hear. Hey. <laughs> but I mean, of course, with the audience, I think it was like a six month waiting list or even more. That's extraordinary that there's a waiting list because... They're that, you're that close to the stars and you're just not asked. They, yeah. like they look like they've been busting under sufferance in a state of confusion. They really do, as if they were expecting mm. like 3, 2, 1 or something. They, they, they really don't seem, to, they don't seem to know what they're doing there. They're looking around in utter confusion and resentment. It must have been quite disorientating, though. I mean, you know, and, and quite anticlimactic for a lot of people because... You know, TV studios, as we know, they're quite a sterile environment. There isn't like a lot of atmosphere. That's why they have to have mm. people with with cattle prods, basically. Like, come on, come on, look like you're having fun. I think I think Sarah has put a nail on the head. There. I think that's probably what it is. That confusion, resentment is is having me kind of like pushed around in what is a very anticlimactic environment, and really the whole magic just being kind of taken apart before them, and all their illusions just ruthlessly stripped away by floor managers. Definitely, I think that's what it is. And also, of course, people now are. Mm. Um, are much more accustomed to, uh, we're, we're much more comfortable with the idea of, of uh, or, or certainly, you know, those young people, they're much more comfortable with the idea of being filmed. They film themselves, put themselves on the internet all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think at, at that time, it would just be like, oh God, I'm, I'm going to be on television. And it would just be mm-hmm. just kind of numb terror, mm-hmm. I think, would probably descend mm-hmm. for a lot of people because like, oh God, this is what I look at on my telly and I'm going to be on that telly. What am I going to do? Yeah, and they'll be seeing themselves on the monitors as well, of course. Oh yeah, and oh, this yeah. is the time. This is a this is a, the period of Top of the Pops where, um, which was a bit strange because at the beginning, if you see the early ones, it's almost like Ready Steady Go. You know, everyone's frugging away and they're the on trend, as we say nowadays. And then in the eighties, in the early eighties, it was Flags and Balloons, Top of the Pops, where they they had you know kind of like. They outsourced the audience to uh, zoo and and you know professional dancers and stuff. This is a kind of like very much the middle phase where they've just herded up some kids and just dumped them and and just gone listen to this and do something and move out of my way <laughs> because you're always looking at top of the pops at the audience when the when the band's boring the eyes go down to the audience and you see what they're doing and and you know sometimes you can clearly see them just running out of the way because the cameras just come right up to the stage. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, they, you're right. They are disconcerted. I think that's to do with the seventies. We were we were shy in the nineteen seventies, and like you say, a little bit camera oh shy as well. We're like one of those old tribes who thought that the camera would steal <laughs> some of our soul. You know, not that we had no soul, <laughs> but uh, but definitely there's a sort of reticence that suddenly goes completely out the window in the post Thatcher era. So the single would spend two weeks in the top forty, only getting to number thirty three. Real 
good thing from the real thing and love such a wonderful thing. Welcome to Top of the Pops. Here's a girl that knows a lot about love. She's the lovely Rita Coolidge singing a Boz Skaggs composition that appeared on his Silk Degrees LPs. It's a song called We're All Alone. Outside the rain begins. Kid points out that Rita Coolidge knows a lot about love. Ooh. Bit much kid, isn't it? What are you saying? That that Ooh. could be. Is he slut shaming her? Good lord. I think he's saying that she's she's felt a lot of pain and she's, you know, she's moved through very many phases and, and, and sings about them. You see, once again, Sarah, I'd remind you that this is a more innocent age. When we talked about love, we were just talking, we weren't talking about doing the deed. No. We were just talking about sort of amorousness and frocks and and romantic liaisons and candlelit dinners and things like that. I know. Like that sort of thing. Yeah. Rita Coolidge was a former backing singer for Jimi Hendrix, Joe Cocker, Eric Clapton and Bob Dylan. And when Kid was saying she knew a lot about love, maybe he was referring to the fact that she was accused as a Yoko Ono of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young when she left Stephen Stills for Graham Nash and split the band up. Well done, Doug. She won two Grammys in the mid-70s with her then-husband, Chris Christopherson, just released her most successful LP, and this pretty much is the one song that we know her for in the UK. What do you think about this song, Sarah? Um, do what? you feel the knowledge of love emanating from Rita Coolidge's mouth into your ear? <laughs> um, it's quite it's it's quite a pleasant tune. It really, really reminded me of the greatest love of all. I wonder if um, mm. if that, but also, um, yeah, you see, this is me being a child of the eighties. Also, similarly, nothing's going to change my love for you by Glenn Medeiros. Right, it's quite. It's, it's in quite, that. It, it's in that ballpark, isn't it? So I couldn't really get those out of my head. So I was, you know, I was, I was failing to focus on the uh, on the, the the kind of the great wisdom of of the ages that was coming through. But it's it's it's, it's pleasant. She's she's got a good voice. It's quite a sort of mm. mysterious mysterious wandering tune as she's sort of wandering through through a garden and sitting in a window next to a giant cactus. Yes, she is. I mean, David, this is a this is one of the rare occasions where there's a, a a film. This is long before the days of the promotional video, of course, but even so, very special to us deprived uh, children of the seventies. The film was, you know, before Freddie Laker and his kind of transatlantic you know, flame revolutions. I mean, America might as well have been in the moon, basically. And there's something about the kind of the graininess of these films that really seemed like a transmission from from eons away, basically. Um, so, yeah, they, 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 and obviously, you know, and it was not possible for them to come in as well, and so that added to the kind of otherness. However, this song obviously adds sort of other qualities, like a certain amount of blandness, really. I mean, considering her sort of pedigree and, and, and background, whatever, and her ancestry, this does kind of drip with the kind of pure white milk of Carpenter's Caucasianness. somehow, this tune that... Uh, uh, I mean, we can go through it. I mean, it begins with Rita at home, sat on a window ledge next to a massive cactus. It's huge. It's huge, isn't it? It's, mm, mm. She doesn't seem very comfortable. Well, That cactus does a lot of symbolic work. I mean, it symbolises, well, the, the prickliness of uh, the thing we call love, of course, you know, love mm. as opposed to, you know. You know but um, And the yeah. pricks we fall in love with and don't deserve you know our love, that perhaps. Ne- that never occurred to me, yeah. yeah. And so we cut from, from that to Rita walking about in a back garden. That's a lovely garden. Yeah, essentially Rita Coolidge is, is having a day off work and she's just she's just gone, you know what, I, there's things I could do, but I'm just going to piss the day up the wall and have a bit of a sing and a walk around and a, and a sit next to me cactus. David, uh, when she says we're all alone, does she mean we're all alone on our own or we're together all alone? 
Yeah, it could be, the, you know, it's the kind of profundity of solitude that uh, we find expressed in the music of uh, Miles Davis, for instance, that, you know, no matter how much we try, we are utterly in a kind of, you know, in this kind of depthless dungeon of solitude. Um, or, I mean, you know, but it is kind of soaked in the sort of carnation milk of saccharine moroseness, though, really, I mean. So it's be, you know, slightly less sympathetic, I suppose. And she's got a nice garden as well, so what's she complaining about? Maybe it could be, look, you know, your ex has, has fucked off and they're not coming back, so, you know, go over here and dip your bread in. Yep. You just don't know. I think that I think the most profound line from the whole song is is close the window, calm the light, because who the fuck is calm in a light in nineteen seventy seven? This is long before the dimmer switch. Mm, mm. I, I would have thought that calming the light in in those circumstances would just be blowing out mm. kind of thirty um, percent of the candles that you had lit at the time, because you know that's 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 how that's where love happens is in places where there are candles. So the record would would peak at number six, spend thirteen weeks in the chart. That was pretty much her done in the UK. She she'd have a minor hit with a cover of the Bee Gees' "Words" in nineteen seventy eight. Stuff there for Rita Coolidge, and we're all alone. Hovering just outside the chart is a band from Australia, currently in this country, The Saints, and this is called This Perfect Day. This Perfect Day by The Saints. Formed in Brisbane, Australia in 1973, began the career by playing Del Shannon and Connie Francis songs Dead Fast. Their first single, I'm Stranded, was released a full month before New Rose by the Damned and was described as single of this or any other week by John Ingham in Sounds. This led to getting signed to EMI for three albums, and this is a third release which is currently at number 41 in the charts. They're, they're bubbling under, as we used to say. This is great. This is a bit more like it, isn't it? It's um, something with a bit with a bit of lead in its pencil. <laughs> but I mean, really, this could have been um, this could have been recorded, mm. you know, last week. This is because um, a lot of um, when you start looking back at these old episodes, some of them are, you know, so um, mm. you know, incredibly dated. You know, you can really just you could you could tell the year, even if you know, just a, a song that's come and gone, you can still tell what what year more or less it was. And this, you know, mm. is really. Um, it could be it could be all over the place. That's when that's when your ears really prick up as you go. Mm. God, this this has that slightly uh, timeless thing about it. Absolutely. I mean, it seems it's not just. I mean, as people talk about it, just anticipating the punk deluge is about to happen. It anticipates things like grunge. It anticipates that kind of sort of timeless sort of like you know scruffy male indignant sort of volcanic mm. guitar style that you know you, you that sort of rolls out from. Like the late eighties onwards, really. Yeah, it's remarkably ahead of its time. It, and it's sound, you know, it does. Yeah, it, it, the sound really stands up. I mean, sometimes things that are supposed mm. to be really kind of rock hard and you know, in, in metallic or whatever, sound a little bit tinny. But this is a, it's got a really, really full sound to it. It's extraordinary. Two girls are more interested in trying to chat up kid than witness the birth of punk. What, what the hell is that all about? Oh, bless them. No, they're just. Uh... You do have to remember that that it sounds funny now, but Radio One DJs were pretty much, you know, at the forefront of uh, male attractiveness in the 70s. <laughs> Seriously, I've seen one episode of Top of the Pops from about this era. Noel fucking Edmonds is presenting, is introducing a song, and he passes the mic onto a girl to, to say the name of the song, and she just grabs him and kisses him. Ah, 
Ah. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. They both look quite, quite, quite terrified, though, really, don't they? In that kind of, you know, like, like I was saying about, oh, God, it's a TV camera. Ah, what am I going to do? And, you know, they are, they, they, they don't look like they're having the best time. They're sort of frozen, frozen grins. You know, maybe it was, maybe that was actually the best moment of their life and they're going to be telling their kids about it now. Oh, look, I was on top of the pops, but, uh, I don't know, I, I don't really envy either of them. I mean, first and foremost, it's clearly obvious that no one in the band is wearing anything by Vivian Westwood. I mean, this is certainly true. I mean, you know, they are, you know, there's, there's a sort of style bypass there. They're going to be, and so, you know, that, that, that means that, as Sarah said, you know, there is a sort of timeless and about it. They look like perennial scruffy blokes with a lot of attitude and um, pent-up mm. sort of indignation. Um, they could have come from any, any era from there after. One of the things I always loved about Top of the Pops, of course, is the uh, the, the spectacle and the sheer, um, the you know, the craziness. These are things that you wouldn't see. Um, you know, I lived in I lived in the north. I wouldn't I didn't live in in yeah, London yeah. where you'd see you might see that sort of thing in the street. Um, and they, they were kind of these these extraordinary aliens that are just sort of um, crashed in and, and they'd, they'd wear the most outrageous things. But the, the reverse is also true. And I really admire people who can just go on TV dressed in, um, <coughs> dressed in whatever they woke up in or whatever they got in wearing last night and just went, do you know what? It cha- getting changed is a bit of a hassle. I'm just going to show up like this. And these guys are really pushing that. It's just like they've discovered kind of new shades of, 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 of brown and grey. Yes, are, yes, you know, yes. Fifty Shades of Brown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, of course, you know, is one of the, one of the key colours of the 70s, and somehow they've managed to reinvent it or, or uninvent it in some way. Mm. Uh, transcend mm. it, if you will. Dress, dress, yeah, dressed in what they woke up in and dressed in what they probably wake up in the next morning as well, yes. It's, uh, yes. I can identify with that sometimes as a freelancer. And, and, of course, the other thing is they look bored as fuck. Oh, we like that. Not... Not thrilled at all to be on top of the pops. Mm. Mm. And that's great, but they don't also, they don't mm. look like they're mm. trying to look bored, which is, you know, you can never do that. Mm. Basically, trying too hard is to be avoided in, in all, in all senses. So if you are bored, just, you know, there is a genuine sort of insouciance there, isn't there? And just a, you know, kind of slight, mm. slightly lip, you know, mm. slightly curled lips, slightly resentful, you know, which is, which mm. of course I, which yeah. I heartily approve of. I think, you know, really cool bands can have that feeling that you should feel like apologising for having detained them, basically. And I think, yes, they definitely mm. exude that. You know, they perform this chore for us, yes. But at the same time, they generate tremendous yeah. excitement. Not with do. certain kids on the front of the stage who leave to go to the other stage. Did you notice that? Oh, no. <laughs> they, couldn't, they couldn't handle it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Couldn't handle the truth. Yeah. When the Saints go marching in, they didn't want to be in that number, did they? No, they didn't, no. And, of course, at the end, the lead singer, Chris Bailey contemplates the thin silver 70s BBC mic with bored contempt and holds away holds it away from himself breaking the miming rule oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's yeah. a nice yeah, that's a nice, that's a nice a... move that there's something elegant about his just kind of complete lack of give a shit at the end there yeah I mean those microphones are fucking horrible anyway aren't they they're the kind of thing Charles Aznavour and Max Bygraves uh, uh, use they're not rock yeah they are there's Nobody looks good because I mean you know you get the kind of the old the fifties ones and you can sort of you can uh, you can gr- you can gr- you get your whole hand you get your whole hand around them like you're going to just chomp into it like yeah. an apple um, but with those it's a very nobody looks good um, with sort of that sort of pincy pincery sort of pinchy it's like you're about to start knitting or something yes. it's like nobody looks sexy doing that it's the kind of microphone you get at the karaoke and you instantly crook your little finger. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, this is, you know, this is pop. It's no place for crooked little fingers, you know. No, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Hi, guys, it's Angelo Sipafimu here telling you to please listen to the Brian and Roger podcast. Now, I don't know who's written it, but whoever it is is probably a genius. So I think you should give it a listen because it's such great stuff. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And of course, at that time, every, everyone was aware that, it, that they were miming, unless you were very young like I was. What do you do in that stage? You know, you, you'll see some bands and it's like, okay, we, we've got a mime and it totally goes against, you know, goes against everything we believe in. So we're going to pull out the stops to, to look as if we're playing live. And other bands will go, oh, look, everybody knows it's miming and we're real. So we're going to just show everyone that we're miming. We see a lot more of that as time goes on mm. after 1977. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see. This might, this might be the first time when there's been a deliberate... Yeah, this is yeah. my main thing. Yeah, that'd be interesting to see if this was if they were pioneers of that because that does take some mm. balls. Actually, is to go on the telly and you know that you're supposed to be doing a certain thing, and you know you you, you maybe you'll get into mm. some trouble if you don't do it. Um, you know, and so that is it's quite a it's quite mm. a ballsy it's quite a ballsy thing really because you are sort of peeling aside the artifice and going, do you know what? This is a lot of you know this is a lot of nonsense. Taking a sledgehammer to the floor. <laughs> exactly. Well done. Uh, the thing that's always got me about that, though, is is what do you do when you're a drummer? You got a mime. How do you mime drumming without looking a total knob? I don't know. It's a good, it's a good point. Well, I hope, I hope, as the episodes go on, we're going to find out. I'm going to pay close attention to the drummers and see how they deal it. Because I mean, yeah, you can do it with the, with the bigger drums. It's cymbals. I don't know if anybody's out there is a drummer and has mimed. How do you do it without looking a knob? Yeah, I want to know. sound from the Saints in this perfect day. At number 21 in the charts this week, a very mellow sound from the Commodores, and here to dance to it are Legs and Co., and they make it look so easy.
trumpet time. <laughs> the fourth dance troupe to appear on Top of the Pops after the Gojo's, Pans People and Ruby Flipper, Legs & Co made their debut in November 1976. Legs & Co, Sarah's an independent woman of the new century. What do you think to that name? Uh, <laughs> which Which one? Legs and Co. What, le- legs, legs and Co. And co. Legs and Co. Okay, I thought you said Ru- Ruby. What was it? Ru- Ruby, Ruby Flipper. Ruby Flipper. Ruby Flipper. That just sounds like something out of the Profanosaurus, doesn't it? I don't know what it would be. Does anyway. really, doesn't it? Legs and Co. Though is, is get it, your Ruby Flipper on this dog. <laughs> but um, yeah, Legs and Co. It, it's it's sort of um, it is rather uh, reducing reducing the 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 highly skilled female dancers to their component parts, really. Um, mm. It's I don't know it 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 is very odd. It does conjure this image of these sort of disembodied pins, sort of uh, jumping mm. about the place. Um, yeah, and very I, corporate as well, which was kind of groundbreaking for nineteen seventy seven. I suppose it was, but I mean, I think and co was used in that in in um, it was it was sort of a a suffix that um, that anybody could use just when you couldn't think of anything else. It's like and and some people there are some people here. They are they amount to a company. Let's put and co. With an ampersand, ampersands are always mm. nice, but yeah, I never. Um, I always, I always find legs and co pants people or, or just very, just a very peculiar thing. It's a very, um, it's a very odd business because they would, they would sort of do, you know. So you, if you couldn't, didn't have a film and you didn't have a live performance, you would have, you would have to dance. And um, there was, all, there was always this, this sort of odd dissonance between the song and the dance routine. Even if they were being, they could be very, very literal. And really, sort of do interpretive dance and really kind of act out the lyrics. And then the rest of the time, they'd try to sort of evoke the mood of the song, and it would just never, it would just never be right because it, it just, you know, it just doesn't, it just doesn't really work. And I, just, I would always, even at a young age, I would always find it a bit embarrassing. Mm. It's like these are the. It's not that there weren't female singers as well, but it's like that's like the main representation of women on top of the pops at this time, mm. and. It's just a bit, uh, probably even as a nipper, I thought, gosh, we've got a long way to go. Yeah. So you didn't want to be a leg and co? Not even slightly, no. Or looked no. like way too much hassle. And uh, all the tiny skimpy costumes as well that were not something that I ever fancied getting into. Mm. David, tiny skimpy costumes, eh? Ho, ho. Hey. Oh, oh, yes, yes. I wouldn't mind having it off with one of those. <laughs> no, it's, uh, uh, I know, no, it was a sort of Never, ever kind do of that again. Of slavering into which older men were supposed to go into. It was um, really, but because there's something strange about, I suppose, legs and co. I was thinking, I suppose, it's like, and co. It's like a company. This is a company with a difference. Mm. We're a dance company. What but, about uh, Legs but, Limited? What well, Legs, legs Limited would have been a lot better. Mm. So you've got the alliteration. Ah, mm. but it's Legs Unlimited because those legs go all the way down to the floor. Oh, Legs Unlimited. I mean, I always thought with with, with Legs and, co- and Pans people before them that there was something, they were, they were kind of sexist and sexless at the same time. Um, it's very strange because the movements, if you actually look at them, they're not really particularly suggestive or sultry. They're almost like this kind of sort of, I don't know, gymnastic or eurythmic type routines that uh, grammar school girls would have done in the 1950s. You know, they kind of sort of waft and sway and move elegantly about the place. Um, so it's bizarre then that this kind of sort of sexual connotation is then sort of rather deviously sort of attached to them by presenters like Daily Travis or whatever and all kinds of uh, deeply, uh, yes, especially retrospectively, deeply unpleasant ways. As we've mentioned, they were there to to basically fill in, to provide visual content for foreign singles that didn't have a promotional video. But also, just as importantly, they served as dad bait. You know, for a lot of dads, that was 
that was one of the um, one of the things that uh, you know that was one of the reasons why you, you, you'd be able to watch it with your dad, which was really embarrassing because you know your dad would go, "Oh, look at that! She's a bit of all right, isn't she?" Yeah, it's a it's a grim story you paint. You know, like Thursday nights in Nottingham, fried bread tea, father getting tumescent in his tin bath. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> That's, so it was. Grim. As the new chart would come out on a Tuesday at that time, um, choreographer Flick Colby would have practically one day to work out a six-person routine and to get suitable costumes in. So, you know, let's not forget that. No, that's pretty That's pretty hardcore. We're going to find that they had a, just an absolute ragbag of shit to, to, to dance and be sultry to. But this one, they're dancing to Easy by the Commodores. Formed in Tuskegee University, Alabama in 1968, they were signed to Motown, primarily as a support band for the Jackson 5. And the saxophone player Lionel Richie assumed the uh, the role of lead singer and songwriter. And this is the first time they've been in the UK charts since Machine Gun in 1974. They've changed the style up, haven't they, David? This is a serious slab of soul, I reckon, is this song. And it's got a little kind of slightly supersonic 70s futuristic touch, of course, you know, with the um, little kind of reverb bit towards the end and um, and that kind of slightly kind of airborne guitar solo. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of class, is this? It is, isn't it? And it's one of those songs that, um, even though there was an advert using it that you hated, it, it still endured. You know, there was that Halifax advert in the late 80s with some twat in the Docklands, mm. kind of like buying a load of papers with his cash point call, which was newfangled even then. Honestly, if, you're, if your song can survive that, then you know you've got a good song. I mean, of course, the other example is um, Night to Remember by Shalimar, which survived the Harvester's advert. Oh. Wow. Yeah, that is that. That is a test. Do you not remember, I remember that? that? I very clearly remember the Halifax advert though, because I, uh, I I quite enjoyed it because he's mm. there. He's living living his best life with his cat in his loft apartment, and he goes strolling out to buy something. He gets some milk for the cat, even though, as I understand it, cats don't actually really like milk. Um, and you know, and then no. he's just he's there chilling, and it, it goes, you know, it goes it goes perfectly with the thing. So it didn't it didn't ruin it for me, but I was young and naive at the time. But I think this is this is a great tune. Mm. If you you know, I, it's one of those tunes where. I am a bit suspicious of people who don't like it. It is one of those, one of those litmus mm. tests, you know. Because what's not to like, really? Yeah, yeah. So what are Legs and Co doing um, to this? Anyone well, remember? Um, as uh, my boyfriend described it as um, synchronized swimming without water. Very good. So it's a kind of slightly, um, you know, there is that that slightly um, that 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 kind of weird wavy wobbly mm. sort of. A lot of flouncing about, really. really. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is it. I think that sometimes, um, as Sarah mentioned earlier, the um, Legs and Co interpretations could be a tad literal, but there isn't a sort of literal... I mean, so with Gilbert and Sullivan Get Down, obviously, there are dogs in that, that performance, and there is lots of finger-wagging to no getting down, what have you, but there's nothing really they can... There's no peg like that that they can sort of no. pass on for this one. And so, yeah, there is a sort of a certain amount of kind of abswack it's all abstract, um, you know, close formation mm. swaying. And the outfits, I would describe them as... Um... It's the sort of stringy negligee that Pocahontas would wear on a dirty weekend somewhere. You know, it is it is kind of sexy and sexless, as, as, as has been put before. Yeah. This song got to number nine on the chart. Uh, kicked off a late 70s run for the Commodores. Lionel Richie left the group in 1982. And the band were last heard of chart-wise in 1985 with Night Shift. Of the Pops. 
The next uh, piece of music is a bit of rock and roll from Dave Edmonds' Rock Pile, and I knew the bride. Well, the bride was a picture in the gown that her mama wore. Well, she was married to sell nearly 27 years before. They had to change the style just a little, but it looked just fine. I Knew the Bride by Dave Edmonds. Born in Cardiff, former member of Love Sculpture, did Sabre Dance, which was his top five hit in 1968. Christmas number one in 1970 with a cover of I Hear You Knocking, which he nicked off a band whose LP he produced earlier in the year, Shaking Stevens and the Sunsets. And of course, by 1977, he's seen as one of the prime movers in the pub rock movement with Nick Lowe. David, rock and roll is is here to stay in 1977. Why? Oh, no, no. This 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 was pretty sort of valid. I mean, he did, um, I hear you knocking, as he mentioned, but this was like the kind of perhaps the last knockings of the whole sort of mid-70s pub rock scene that really was mm. it helped kind of clear the... Clear, you know, it was very much of a sort of piece with the whole punk thing because it was a similar sort of thing. It was like mm. going to studios, bashing out singles for about 100 quid, no video, um, a fairly kind of basic sort of sound, played in rocks as, you know, played in pubs, I should say, as, you know, as, as suggested in, in the title of the genre. Um, and so there was a kind of affinity, really, between people like David and certain people like Nick Lowe. You know, they were very much sort of favourites in places like Enemy and Melody Maker, especially as they were tremendously funny interviews so there was no sense that this was the kind of force of reaction to which you know people like sex pistols were kind of militating against far from it i mean yeah it was much more kind of sort of you know it was kind of basic and serviceable or whatever um but it mm. was um but it wasn't it wasn't like status quo or anything like that it had a kind of no. you know it was part of the new world Mm, but I mean, of course, you know, Ted's mm. was still a thing in 1977. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the, the cover of the enemy that week was about the violence between punks and Ted's on the King's Road. Mm. And from our perspective, it's it's very strange that that thing is still going in 1977. And this is this is just well, before Elvis yeah. di- dies. Elvis dies a year, uh, a month mm. later. Um, mm. We're, we're still a year away from Greece, which was probably the peak of all that. And you know, Happy Days is on the telly, so you know we're 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 still obsessed with America in the fifties, even then. Yeah, that was something that had been going on for a few years from about nineteen seventy three onwards. It was almost as if like the whole rock history had just about found time to kind of catch its breath, and it was the first time it was almost like a kind of postmodern moment where it's looking back at the mid fifties, mm. at the kind of beginnings, and sort of you know, which is suddenly over, you know, which is all of you know, like eighteen years previously, and it just seems like a kind of eon away, and so this tremendous wave of nostalgia um, in terms of like movies, in terms of series, like I mentioned Happy Days, and a whole raft of groups, notably people like Shoe Waddy Waddy. Mm. Um, just, you know, there's a huge, you know, early rock and roll revival goes on in a big way from 73 yeah. onwards. Pub rock is sort of tangential, I think, slightly tangential mm. to that, but it's, um, but yeah, it's definitely very, very, and so yeah, you did have the kind of Ted's resurgence or whatever, and then of course, like you say, you know, the clash between the Ted's and the punks or whatever. Um, I mean, at this time, being a, being a nine-year-old, um, you know, Show Waddy Waddy was one of the biggest bands at my school, you know, because we were still that age where we, we still wanted to be our dads and our dads were all old Ted's. So at the school disco, you know, um, if Return to Sender by Elvis came on or or Hey Rock and Roll, there'd be loads of lads dancing together and, and chucking themselves on the floor to do that press-up thing and then chucking themselves backward to land on one hand and then and then we'd all go off to the toilets and, and you know, we weren't, you know, we weren't dancing with girls and spinning them around or anything because girls, uh. But, you know, we'd, we'd go off to the toilets and, and chuck water all over ourselves and come back and make it look as if we'd been sweating. That was... that. that. Yeah. 
There, there were new variations, new dance variations. Like you, you had your thumbs and your oh, belt. Uh, the mud rocker. Like, <laughs> two young men. That's right. The mud rocker, of course, mud of part of all of that with your brothel mm. creepers and all that. Yeah, and it like you know sort of set each other, set against each other like stags and yes. dancing into one another. It's uh, yeah. But, um, you know, all in a this sounds st- brilliant. Well, it was. I mean, you know, <laughs> oh, you I'm sorry that, that I missed YouTube this. <laughs> but, I mean, I was thinking watching this, it's kind of like, who, you do, you get that sense of incredulity, uh, just going, okay, who, who was into this in 1977? Mm. But, of course, you, 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 you it's easy to, um, it's easy to forget there's a lot of, um, there's always a lot going on in any given year. And it's like, history will, um, uh, you know, there, there are, um, it takes a while for the true picture, for the the, the sort of the stronger, the, the significant stuff to rise to the top, and then there's. But of course, there's so much other stuff going on. There are there at any one time. There's you know things that are on the way up, things that are on the way mm. out, things that are kind of just bubbling, bubbling along as they always have done. And you know, of course, so so it's um, so then I, I uh, chastised myself for my own foolishness because of course there would be plenty of people who were still into this in 1977 um, um, because theirs was a different 1977. And the thing is, of course, this is still a time where practically everyone is still buying records you know we see we see records you know as as you know the something that the, the kids would buy but you know non ours would go into boots and buy records you know you could buy records anywhere you could buy them at boots you could buy them at wh smith there was loads of record shops in your in your local town you know you could even buy them at the paper shop you know after they'd been mm. deleted or something so you know, yep. and and this is one of the great things about Top of the Pops because you are going to see just a lot of ramble, and you will look at it and go, "Well, who the fuck bought that?" But you know, someone did. Yeah, yeah. And I tell you what, it, it was... has to be said that the uh, the audience are reacting more to this song than anything else. There's some really bad Ted skipping mm, going mm, on in the audience. Yeah. I mean, you you know, you you. I mean, this is it. Top of the Pops in 1977 is probably catering part of its audience is people born in the Edwardian era. There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, who, yeah, who might still buy the, uh, purchase the odd disc. And again, and again, this is dad bait, isn't it? My, this would come on, and my dad would be sitting there and going, "Oh, this is proper music. This is this is what you want." Yeah, there's quite quite a lot for the dads, really. I mean, when did it become? Uh, you know, when did it? Uh, when did we wrest it from them? You know, when did we? Uh, when did we get top of? The oh, pops? it'd be it'd be the synth era. That's when they got really confused and angry. That's when we banished them. When they actually, you know, got out of the tin bath and just water slopped everywhere, the- and they ran. Naked and <laughs> from yeah. the room. <laughs> yeah, the Boy Going, George Wars of nineteen eighty two. That was a key moment. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then when Legs and Co. disappeared and Zoo, which had men, ugh, yeah. that's that's when it got that's when it you know, that's when the dads just turned away. <laughs> that, that was, that's like a menage a trois with another man who is not on is it yeah <laughs> anyway this is one of the very rare examples where a top of the pops appearance did nothing for the record it dropped down two places the following week and we'd hear nothing more from Dave Edmonds for another year or so with girls talk so yeah if you've been wondering what happened to Jigsaw puzzling yourself no more because they've been putting it all together again with a new 45 release if I have to go away.
Formed in Coventry in rugby in the mid-60s, Jigsaw started as a blues and then a progressive band, and the gigs included fire-eating, drum kit demolition, and in one instance, putting a hole in the ceiling of a club when one of them decided to leap off the top of the organ. They calmed down a lot after that, and they wrote Who Do You Think You Are for Candlewick Green, who won Opportunity Knox. That's the second reference to Opportunity Knox. They had a top 10 hit in 1975 with Sky High, and this is their comeback single, currently at number 47. I don't know. I mean, I, was, <laughs> I know this was, yeah, this was, uh, again, this was the real 1977 for most people, but I mean... Yeah, you know what? What are they doing? I really did. You know, there's there's a lot of a lot of this episode, which is which is you know uh, not to my taste, but I can see something in it, and you know I can see what other people might have seen in it. And this is just you know it really is, um, you know, really really trying too hard, and um, you know and and producing very little of any any substance. Just sort of you know well, uh, just just kind of sitting there going, what what are you what are you doing, mate? You should probably stop. You're just twatting about at this point. As the camera pans in on the band from the side, we notice there's no drum kit. And that's because the drummer, Des Dyer, is singing. David, I've got my notes here. Fucking hell, what is he wearing? Well, yes, indeed. I mean, it's strange at the time. It would have washed over me. I would have considered, I would have just immediately... Oh, this would have been normal, wouldn't it? Oh, it's absolutely normal. I mean, it wouldn't have seen, you know, I would just poo-pooed it. I would consider it extraneous to my listening requirements. Um, however, now, yes, it does strike me as a kind of staggeringly surreal artefact, you know, of the day. It's like picking up some sort of plastic fossil and thinking, my God, this, this is how we live. This is how things were. Um, at the same time, I mean, it, it's, you know, that falsetto, it's quite ambitious. It does remind me of remember Barry Biggs, a, contemporary yes. with Barry White. They did yeah. the sideshow and everything like You could sense yeah. it like, you no, know, there was an honourable attempt to kind of... Literally, you know, scale those heights, as it were. Barry Biggs was like the polar opposite to Barry White, wasn't it? On the Barry scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you had Barry up there. You had White at the bottom and Biggs right right in the stratosphere. Right up there, yeah. Des Dyer is wearing a white zip-up blouse, which is open to the belly button. He has a white scarf tied around his neck like Mr. Sheen. And he's got a a gold medallion with, with a D. And on my mm. notes here, he looks like if Tim Brooke Taylor and the goodies did the naked civil servant, that's mm. what Tim Brooke Taylor would look like. Oh, but, but, but he looks it, it, comedy, Dick Emery. Um, except, I know, but it wasn't, that, that was not what he was looking for, though. That, none of that hello, hello haunting tonk stuff, none of that John Inman stuff. I mean, yeah, no. this was considered to be a combination to knock out the ladies. Yeah, but, but to our eyes, it looks yeah. all ducker. Yeah, yes, it is. Yes, yes. The word <laughs> yeah. ducky does sort of yeah. scream green. Yeah, that's, that's what the D um, was actually yeah. for. And I think he... <laughs> yes, ducky. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and he sings in a, in a, in a castrato voice about yes. having to go away. I mean, to me, it sounds... This song, you know, I'm not, I'm not as down on the song as, as, as serious. To me, it sounds like a... a if, that was, if that was on a stylistics album, you go, yeah, yeah that's all right. But it's 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 like style, the stylistics in Batley Variety Club. It's like chitlins in a basket. I think mm. it is a bit. Mm. But it was you know. But sorry, I should say that the you know in terms of the you know the the, the dress, the sartorial aspects, the male of the species. They were, it's like mallards and female ducks or whatever they are. Sorry, my mm. duck knowledge. We've just taken a short tour to the end of the cliff of my duck knowledge. Um, but you know, it's the male is the has the kind of the plumes and the flam points, and the female of the species is relatively sort of you know sort of mm. beige and whatever in colour. I think you know there was a bit of that kind of duck spirit really about like males like the chap and zigs, zigs you know, that you really <laughs> were kind of like. 
you know, sort of blossoms and your plumage and your flamboyance in order to yeah. attract the women folk. And I think that's yeah. what he was thinking, you know. Is that the best you can do, though? Is like, you know, if you can't be a peacock, at least you can be a duck. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's not... Come on, aim, I, aim higher. You know, you're on top of the right, fucking cops. <laughs> well, and I, you, make, you know, I, I, I pitched the defence to the bloke and that's as far as I could do. I mean, David, and you, and you do make well a very, you make a very strong point, David. But you, you have to realise this is like this is four years after like 1973 and Starman and all that kind of stuff. We're we're, we're moving on to the kind of like the Mister Byright Man at CNA version of of the of the um of the Mister Humphreys collection. Mm. And he he looks a bit too old to be wearing that sort of thing, doesn't he? He's got this really yeah. bad kind of like Dennis Waterman circa the Sweeney feather cut spaniel thing at the side and he wears this look of absolute i don't know he just he, he just doesn't want to be there does he no mm. no i almost feel sorry for well, him well and then it gets to a point where he's singing the chorus and out of nowhere a, a totally uncalled for proper uncle wink Ugh. you see that i can't i can't oh he pulls it. this it's just oh, it's like he's just seen legs and cone. He's just gone, oh, look at the crumpet, eh? Oh. And then he does, a, then he does a really bad turn and kick as well. That's just really half-assed, and it's just, it's just killed the song for me. I have to say, I have to say, you know, you have those appearances that on top of the pops can absolutely make a song. This one's just broken it into smithereens for me. It is interesting though, isn't it? Because that is kind of what you would, uh, you know, what used to be considered stagecraft, I suppose. This is, you know, you could, yes. there is a whole book in this is like kind of what what is mm. acceptable in, you know, this is, these are the things you do. You have a bit of flair, you do, but you, you you move your leg a bit and you, 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 mm. you know, look as if you're having a stroke a bit. And then, you know, yeah. it's yeah. like, that's, that's what you're, you're supposed to do some of that, you know, but it, it's, it's interesting how some of these things kind of might, they may have been cutting edge at one point. And now they've kind of, they're going further and further towards like the end of the pier or into the kind of, yeah. you know, further and further into the nightclubs of the North, you know. The song, why does he have to go away? Do, do we find out? I think that's, I think that is a, a that's self-evident. I think he has to go away because his court case has come off. <laughs> he was in the pub in his new togs and someone's going, oh, hey, up here's bloody Quentin Crisp or some old ducker. Mm. And he's, he's just kicked off and it's all gone terribly wrong. And now he's, he's going to have to leave his missus and she's probably going to cop off with a lorry driver or something like that. Yeah, but if it's... An if all too common in, tale. If he kicked off in the way that he kicked off on stage, then surely they should let him off. I mean, how much damage could it possibly do? Yeah. Yeah. But this song, this is why punk had to happen. It's like punk hadn't happened yet, as uh, as they don't say. Yeah, half of this episode of Top of the Pops really is why punk had to happen. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It really yeah. wasn't just prog, actually. That's something about it. I mean, punk was reacting against a whole raft of sort of barrenness and pop mm. tedium and what have you. Yeah. The song got no higher than uh, number 36, and this is their last appearance on Top of the Pops. Uh, the band split up in 1980 and pieces of them kind of like disappeared down the side of the sofa or something. I don't know. I'm just picking up on those really bad jigsaw-related puns that Kid Jensen started with. Um, Des Dyer was last seen on telly in the 1985 Song for Europe, which finished fourth, but he later ended up working with Boyzone and Bad Boys Inc. Possibly not as their stylist. Bad Boys Inc., I remember them. My mate always used to call them Boys in a Bag, which I thought was such a great, (laughs) such a great catch-all term. It's such a kind of brilliant... Pejorative term for all boy bands. It's great. 
the terms, one of Britain's biggest exports must be Super Tramp. And here they are from their album, even in the quietest moments. Formed in London in 1969, Super Trump were originally known as Daddy. Oh, God, it, no. Yes. It wasn't until 1975 that they had their first UK hit, Dreamer. Uh, they're currently touring in Canada, so we have to make do with concert footage. And the first thing that strikes you looking at this film, billowing white flares. Oh, yes. Sarah, were, were flares as incredibly amusing to your generation as they were to ours? Uh, yes. Because I, I do believe your lot brought them back. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. Well, you know, it's, uh, yeah, but we, we did it with, with, with much more, you know, style and poise and everything. I think, yeah, I right. think that the actual billowing, you know, that, that was something that mm. was not really seen again after the 70s. And, you know, there was something magnificent about it, you know, kind of um, that, that sort of, you know, from, from the knees down, there's this kind of, cloud of, of fabric just kind of the, the, the excess of that as well is it's just like i don't need all of this fabric but i'm gonna put it in there anyway because it's the 70s mm. god damn it and also the fact that they're white flares as well that that is that's top of the range isn't it because it, it's, it's basically saying look i know i'm going to get these these flares fucked up yeah because it's I've... the 70s and uh but i don't give a shit i'll just buy some new ones Absolutely. That's it. Really, the subtext of those those kecks is is uh, is there's quite a lot to unpack there. Really. Yeah. It's like you know you're gonna if you get ketchup on those you know any any of us mm. would be would be horrified. Oh, you fucked for the no. day, aren't you? Yeah. 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 Well, it was like flares were like moder- flares were like modernity. It was the idea that like flares were just going to get wider and wider and wider and bigger. And um, you know, there's the idea that that thing is ever sort of taper back was was unthinkable really so there's a metaphor between flares and modernism really you know? david when was the what what year was the last time you wore flares well frankly not 1980 sadly oh me too yeah. <laughs> but they didn't die without a fight didn't flares yeah right through to like 1980 i wasn't the only one mm. so anyway let's let's avoid talking we're only talking about flares to to avoid talking about the song <laughs> I like this song. What's it's not nice to, it's enough, all right, isn't it? isn't it? It's not bad. Yeah, there's a sort of, sort of blue-eyed quality to Supertrack that's actually been revived. Um, um, if you listen to things like Digital Love by Daft Punk, it's definitely referencing Supertram. Um, and maybe that's what the part of the attraction is. There is something absolutely s- sort of irreducibly 70s about them. They don't really... I mean, I think by that point they've made so many hackers there. They're like white flares could double up as sails on their... Uh, probably had a white basically. flare rotor. Sure that's on the, Just looked the, after yeah, them. Yeah, quite possibly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, this song did have a kind of afterlife, I think. Didn't it, it did, it yes. Featured, um... It was usually a year later in Superman, is what Lois Lane is mm. listening to in the car before she kind of like gets swallowed. Um... Before the earth opens up. I have a soft spot for certain things like this and Toto and certain sort of... So soft rock of a certain stripe, actually. I think there's a certain something, I shouldn't mm. say quoi, that, um, you know, I, I, I'd hesitate to say guilty pleasure because I don't feel guilty about any of my pleasures. Well, 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 <laughs> but, um, Tell but, it, yeah, brother. Um, certainly not musically, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a little bit, it's a bit, um, it's a bit whiny. It's a little bit up in the nasal passages, but, you know, that's, that's uh, you know, it, mm. it's... Um, mm. That to to a manageable mm, degree. But, I mean, you could you could uh, interpret it yeah. in, in, in a little bit. No, go on, go on, come on. What are you doing? So it's uh, it's it's a little yeah. bit a little bit whiny, bit whingy. But uh, but that's all right. But then you're just getting into it. This was a very annoying thing that Top of the Pops used to do. Of course, is they would start. You know, yeah. the, it's almost as if they hadn't timed yes. things right. They were, oh shit, we've got to. You know, we're running out of time. We need to lop this. 
very agreeing to guillotine this just as mm. you just as you're starting to enjoy it in the middle of a chorus. They did it with easy as yeah, well, didn't they? Did. They did. It's like, oh come on, I was enjoying that. But now we've got to we've got yeah. to give way to something else. Which may or may not be better. Yeah. Going back, I mean, I think that, that you know that that wine it is it's the white wine of male entitlement, mm. isn't it? It kind of like rang throughout mm. pop and rock throughout a certain era. Yeah, give a little bit, mm. a little bit. Mm, I want something, and I deserve it. Give it to me. <laughs> 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 mm, mm. So this appearance on mm. Top of the Pops did absolutely nothing for the single. They didn't get any other bit. It stayed where it was and then it slid out of the charts and they had a couple of hits later and blah, 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 blah. It was released in 1992, re-released in 1992 in order to raise funds for ITV's Telethon, uh, but it didn't chart. And they'd be back two years later with the LP Breakfast in America and two top 10 singles off that. And also predict 9-11. Oh, Yeah. That album cover. Apparently, if you reverse it, if you reverse the cover, uh, two of the words that form Super Trump spell out 9-11 over the World Trade Center. <sighs> yeah. Well, they knew a, th- they knew a thing or two, or, or maybe not. Yeah. Getting more than a little bit. Super Trump. Right now, Scylla Black. And this is her brand new single release. This is called I Wanted to Call It Off. Jensen is seen with two young ladies draped on his shoulders while he introduces a song which is very conservative by uh, Top of the Pops presenter standards. He must be on a he must be on a diet or something. <laughs> he has both hands where we can see them. Yes, well done, well done, kid. That's it's almost as if he anticipated the, the scrutiny yeah, that would be that would be to come. You, you do get to the point now when you're watching Top of the Pop, old Top of the Popses, and you you just. You're just looking for where the hands are, and you're looking for for um, reactions on on young girls' faces and stuff like that. <laughs> anyway, Scylla is standing on a podium wearing a peach gown with an embroidered butterfly on the front, and a matching scarf of the type that killed Isadora Duncan. Maybe she's got a love bite or something. It may be her and um, and Des out of Jigsaw had a bit of a uh, love bite session just before, and they've, they've had to cover up. Maybe that's oh, it. It's horrible. Cilla Black's musical career hit a rough patch in the 70s. At the time this was broadcast, this was the 10th single she released since her last hit in 1971. She's pretty much a television presenter by this point. She's doing a a Saturday evening show called Cilla, and she's also presenting Cilla's Comedy 6 and Cilla's World of Comedy for ATV. Cilla's World of Comedy, that sounds like a Star Trek episode that needed to be made. (laughs) Well, it's like a, it's a terror, a terraform somewhere where um, you know it's just yeah. it's, it's yeah. a world populated only by by uh, by clones of Scylla Black, like mm. bl- just yeah. poking you in the eye until until yeah. uh, until, until well, jump, they jump out and surprise you. Oh yeah, yeah, and and try and hook you up with people you don't really like. Yeah, 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 and you can never and you know there are no once you're once you're there you can't get out again. Yeah, all the big 
British girl singers of the 60s. They had a rough old time in the 70s, didn't they? I mean, but why Why do you think that was? Mm. There was always, there was a place for that, you know, where they entered what was probably considered like, you know, sort of, um, you know, sort of senility via the kind of 70s pop standards, you know, 29, 30, whatever it was. But um, I was going to say the place that's usually like in intervals in the, the Two Rise or something like Barbara Dixon, people like that. And it, for some mm. reason, when they had a big comedy show like Two Rise or even Tommy Cooper, they felt that people couldn't stand like 10 or 15 minutes of mirth without um, without kind of having a break with some MOR singer of the day. And um, people like Dana and... Uh, um, Barbara Dixon, as I say, and yeah, and still a black with occasionally Patty Boulet, and they have to be kind of wheeled on to give you a kind of chuckle muscles arrest. Um, and that seems to be the kind of the function of a certain sort of ladies of a certain age in you know during the nineteen seventies. Mm. And this seems to sort of belong very much to that kind of you know that that, that sort of um, particular kind of MOR genre, basically. Mm. And it's not as if they're being replaced by newer female singers. Mm. Mm. Because the only singers, the only female singers that were coming up were all your American kind of like singer songwriter Joni Mitchell type. So, yeah, very strange, very strange. Mm, I think also, but once somebody was a name like Silla Black, it's almost so you get some of the benevolence with Kylie Minogue in her career that, like, you know, that they're pretty mm. much allowed to do anything and sort of, you know, and seem to have an extraordinary long life just because people know who they are. And, um, you know, mm. I mean, it's supposed to be a kind of cruel and cutthroat business, you know, the music business. But it's actually not if you're in a particular kind of position. If you're still a black, it isn't. And if you can't even know, it's one of the most kind of benevolent institutions, um, you know, since history began. Yeah. But I don't think that was by accident. I think Scylla maxed that out, really, because her career was, I think everything was secondary to her, which is quite sort of, uh, um, she sort of, she was the shape of things to come really in that way. It's, it's the sort of, um, she really kind of milked the, um, famous of being famous thing. It's not that she, she, she lacked talent, but, um, although I suppose it is debatable, but everything was, everything was secondary. Singing, presenting, whatever, it was all secondary to, um, the, the overarching plan, which is just to be as, as, um, as known as possible. Uh, by as many people for mm. as long as possible for anything, which is why I don't enjoy this performance because um, that's all it says to me. It just seems to me that it's like it's any amount, any, you know, getting airtime by any means necessary in, in by mm. using whatever tools you have. It's a nothing performance. It's a nothing song. It's it's terrible all around. And yet, and, and the weird thing about Silver Black is that, like, they had this survey... Um, probably just around the time that she died, actually, of people that like, worked in the air industry, you know, air stewards, people like that. Like, who were the rudest celebrities? And she came number one, hands down. She was definitely not a very nice person. And I think it's ironic that somebody who made such a mm. thing as a Colin touch or Asilla or out this, out that, was a real kind of martinet in real life. You know, she insisted that the people working for her called her Mrs... Mrs. White or whatever, something, or Mrs. or whatever Bobby, her husband, what's her name was, you know, they weren't allowed to cook. Maybe yeah, she yeah, just liked Somebody Cluedo, was a real but, kick down, you know. you know, it was very kicked down when it came to sort of anybody that considered to be working for her or, with, you know, in a very short way with servants and as it were, she would have seen them. Um, mm. And, um, you know, very sort of hierarchically minded. But I would actually say that she is talented on, on two fronts. I think she was talented as a TV presenter. I don't think you could sort of like, I was like, mind say all of this years. No, she, you can't she, argue she that. She faked the common touch very, very well indeed. I mean, it was completely fake, I'm sure. And as a singer in the, in the, in the mid-60s, um, you know, there were certain hits, some of the background David stuff that she does. I mean, she's got that kind of way of turning her voice and getting that kind of rather flat, abrasive quality that's kind of really, really clever. I think she could, you know, in a time, just now and again, she could deliver a really good song. This is not an example of that. But um, No, and, and, and honestly, if you're sitting there waiting for the Sex Pistols, you must be chewing mm, your mm, fucking mm, arm mm, off mm, by now. Mm. 
And like and like all boring songs like this, your eyes immediately go off to the audience. And in in the background, are two yous that look like extras in the Sweeney, and they're swaying along. But next to them is a spotty Herbert in a Union Jack top hat. It was linked arms with a girl who's clearly out of his league, and the rest of the audience look bored shitless. Did you notice? There's always mm. one. There's always one blurt giving it loads isn't there really it's like they've kind of i mean it's his big day out isn't it yeah you know and he's got his silly hat and he's there you know kind of um just thinking why isn't everybody else why isn't everybody else enjoying pretending to enjoy themselves as much as me look at me enjoying myself it's that kind of performative i don't know maybe he really was having a brilliant time but you know he looked as if he did it was that girl next to him didn't though no she was was and of course by the end of the song she's yeah, by the end of the song, she's broken free. But he's he still dances alone, unaware that the song has ended. He was he was happy enough. Maybe, maybe he's just off his tits. Yeah, yeah, that's always a possibility, you know. Yeah, the song didn't chart, unsurprisingly, and Silla would appear one more time on top of the pops a year later, entering a disco phase. But it didn't chart either, and her pop career was done. But as we've mentioned, she's got other things. Other irons in the fire. Away the contrast, this week's highest new entry is at number seven. It's the third single release from the Sex Pistols. Their new one, it's called Pretty Vacant. This is one of the first original Sex Pistols tunes. It's been in the set list as early as November 1975, and it was written by recently arsed-out bassist Glenn Matlock, who claimed it was inspired by ABBA's SOS. Can you hear that in that song? Hmm. No. No, no, not even now that you've said it. Not remotely, no. So, I mean, at at this point, you're, you're expecting all kinds of chaos and anarchy and swearing and spitting and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but of course, we get we get another promotional film. It, it is. It's, it, it's, it's a pre-record, isn't it? They're not going to risk having them in the studio. And, Recorded um, two days before in the ITN studios. Shame they couldn't get Reginald Bose and Kay on, but never mind. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So yes, he won't remember. Sorry, but Reginald Bose and Kay was a, a rather um, slurry IT, ITN newsreader. Um, with a fondness for the booze, who uh, consequently died rather early, but uh, oh, blimey! But I remember, but I, I did anyway. This expert, I remember watching at the time. So I mean, clearly, I've managed to sort of zone completely out of my memory the rest of the contents of the show, <laughs> and this is absolutely seared on on, on my memory. Um, I remember everything, you know, from the kind, you know, from the kind of the old world microphone yeah. whatever, that he's wielding. Uh, yeah, the the um, Sid Vicious's shock of hair, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The sound I remember seeing much much heavier, and it actually seems slightly tinny now in a way that the guitar in now compared with the Saints, oddly enough. But of course, I mean, above all, they can't. You know, the, 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 the way they're able to kind of like they found a none too subtle way of like um, pronouncing very loudly that particular syllable to uh, you know prime time audience. And of course, the next the next day in the papers, the headline was "Pistols Keep It Clean." <laughs> no, they didn't. They said cunt loads of times. I know. Well, people were innocent then. I mean, like the fact that the village people, it was amazing, extraordinary, like the village people were able to kind of be so, so, so camp. And no, you know, they flew completely under the radar, such as the radar was then. Nobody suspected that anything remotely homosexual was or related <laughs> to sodomy of any particular strike <laughs> was going on here. I mean, in the Navy, they, they recruited, in the Navy, they, yeah. they, the, the, the US Navy recruited them to kind of get them in and like, you know, it has to, to, to 
and encourage young men to join up with this band of band of young men. Um, it was extraordinary, like how piss poor the radar was at the time. Mm. So yeah, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, the pieces were keeping it clean. Mm. Um, absolutely, they weren't. But it tore through the fabric. I mean, and like I say, I I, I remember I remember this performance very very vividly. Mm. I mean, of course, Malcolm McLaren was dead set against the Sex Pistols appearing on Top of the Pops, and so was Johnny Rotten. But then he was taken out to a Greek restaurant by Top Brass at Virgin while Malcolm McLaren was on holiday, and he was talked into doing a couple of things. The first thing we'll talk about later. Second thing was to go on Top of the Pops, and and someone from Virgin actually said to Johnny Rotten, it'll be right next to Cilla Black and Des O'Connor. It's going to be fantastic, and Johnny Rotten liked the idea of that, and lo and behold, it was. Maybe that's the only reason Mm. they put Cilla on. To to please mm. Johnny Rotten. Mm, mm. Of course, but there's something. But I was the, you know the way that it's presented. I think that what they kind of managed to do is Kid Jensen maybe is a safe pair of hands. You know, if it'd been Tony Jack, uh, Tony, Tony, Tony Blackburn, Jacklin been presenting it. <laughs> Tony Jacklin presenting that would have been even stranger, but Kid Jensen doesn't miss a beat, you know, as he presents it. It's all part of the kind of seamless tapestry of pop in 1977. Yep. You've got Silly, you've got Jigsaw, and you've got the Sex Pistols, and whatever. Um, and, um, you know, I think they did it very well. If that had been Tony Blackburn, I think it would be difficult because he found it hard to kind of suppress his emotions. Dead Kennedy's had a hit um, two or three years later with Too Drunk to Fuck, and I remember him reading out the charts, um, you know, he was doing the total rundown that week and said, and at number 17 is um, a song by a group who choose to call themselves the Dead Kennedys. <laughs> you know, he, he could not conceal his contempt for punk rock for a second. Sarah, what's this doing for you? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's um it, it's really fascinating, of course, to see it from you know having not having not seen it at the time and trying to sort of um and then seeing it in in the context of their um of their of their top of the pops performance. Um, I mean, they do you know because uh of course we're we're all we're all very used to it now, but you can imagine at the time they would sort of look and sound like the apocalypse in a certain way. You know, they mm. are so so different to everything else that's going on, and yet there is. You know, there is a link. There is a linkage. There is a lineage because it is. You know, it, it is a sort of. It is pub rock, basically. Um, and mm. um, yeah, it's. I mean, th- the thing is that my sort of experience. The only thing that I can relate it to, I suppose, is when um, when the Prodigy first had Firestarter on top of the pops, and this caused this tremendous. There was sort of a little yeah. echo of of this response where it was in the papers. It was like, what the fuck is that? What just happened? Mm. Who is that guy? Is he actually, is he, you know, the, who is this sort of weird devil man who has just sort of sprung mm. out of nowhere? And so I can, you know, and I, 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 it, it's incredible that people were still shockable in, uh, you know, whenever, whenever that, uh, whenever it was that that came out and sort of, um, you know, it's, it's sort of almost, um, 20 years after, but, um, yeah. yeah. And they look, I mean, it's certainly the first time the top of the pops have had a swastika on it. I mean, unless a horse vessel song got into the charts, but I can't, I can't remember that. Yeah, but the swastika when punks when the swast the swastika to punk didn't wasn't sort of some sort of far right gesture. It was to hack off their parents who were always going on about how England won the war and what have you. That's yeah. what it meant. Mm-mm-mm. And you know you got you got you got to remember that you know when you're a kid in the seventies you saw a lot of swastikas. You know you'd be reading Battle Comic and um, and Commando and stuff like that. Uh, World at War was on every Sunday tea time. So yeah, you you you, you saw you must have seen about thirty swastikas a week. <laughs> Yeah, so maybe it kind of went under the radar. That was our ration. Yeah, you were so you were so kind of used to seeing it, but um... what would the Sex Pistols be wearing nowadays then to shock people? Um... A bikini, or or an well, yeah. ISIS t-shirt, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, 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 possibly, yeah. That's probably the only thing I can think of, and it just simply wouldn't be allowed on. I mean, that's the thing. That's the no. strange thing that they would permit a swastika, but. 
um, you know, sort of checks and balances, securities are in place that would ensure that it just simply wouldn't happen. I mean, you know, so mm. it. Um, um, I think that anything comparatively shockable, it's just there isn't really anything that you can mm. put in place there. You'd have to do it. You'd have to be really nifty about it. You'd have to do some sort of invisible ink thing or some sort of like you have to take some mm. water on stage with you. And I'm just trying to figure out how you could how you could do this. If it was like something that only showed up when your shirt was wet, you could like just, dump, you know, at mm. the end of the song, just dump the water over your head. But then, of course, health <laughs> and safety wouldn't let you do that either. So, you know. God, it's no. boring now, isn't it? Isn't it yeah, boring? It's terrible, isn't, isn't it? Isn't it rubbish? It's terrible, isn't it? And, and and also, I mean, after all the build-up the Sex Pistols have had in the in the press and everything, it, it, are are we disappointed by this performance? I think there's probably a certain kind of low-level menace and a certain uh, a certain danger about them, you know, because it's not what they're doing right now. It's sort of the potential, and it's because they've mm. become this sort of lightning rod for everybody's. Uh, you know, for sort of outrage and, 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 and real fear, you know, and it's like, well, these are still the guy, you know, and they, um, well, it's not that, you know, they're, they're young. It's not that they're necessarily healthy, but it's like, yes, they could do some damage in some way. You can kind of see yeah. that that potential is there waiting to, waiting to come out that they're going to, they're going to, um, you know, shake things up. And so, um, yeah. I don't know. I think some people go, oh, is that it? But, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine. I, I can imagine it putting the willies up a lot of people as well. So Pretty Vacant stayed where it was the next week, and then it got no higher than number six. It only jumped one place in the end. Two days after this, though, Johnny Rotten appeared on Capital Radio with Tommy Vance and played some of his favourite music, including Captain Beefheart, King Tubby, Gary Glitter, and Flea Ants by the Third Ear Band, which was sung by a 14-year-old Keith Chegwin. You ever heard that? No. The radio show, that's all on YouTube. You must listen to it. It's amazing. And then, of course, it was followed up by the last proper Sex Pistols single, Holiday in the Sun, three months later, and they were effectively done of sorts. Well, at least at least John Lydon was with them anyway. It's with a great deal of pleasure that I have on the programme to introduce to you tonight a former number one artist by the form of Kenny Rogers. Welcome. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Welcome to Britain. What are you doing over here? Well, I'm actually on holiday now. I'm coming back from working in Saudi Arabia for the last two weeks. And uh, to get out of Saudi Arabia in the 120-degree weather, believe me, it was great to come here and find it, what was moderately warm here, I understand, for you. Any chance of any uh, future dates you may have in, in this country for us? I was told today on telephone that I will be here November for about eight days and throughout the United Kingdom. So I'm looking forward to this. First time in about seven years I've worked here. Kenny Rogers pitches up and has a bit of chit and chat with Kid. Uh, Lucille was number one four weeks ago. One word, Saudi Arabia. <laughs> mm. What the hell strange. was Kenny Rogers doing in Saudi Arabia? He certainly wasn't gambling, that's for sure. Mm. I don't think there was a kind of consciousness about Saudi Arabia and its uh, malfeasance at that particular point. But ultimately, I think the only purpose of this item was pure, I think it was just purely trundled on to soften the blow of Pretty Vacant, actually. Yeah. It's very unusual. Calm down, everyone. Kenny's here. Everything's all right. With his comforting beard. You know, it's all right. You can just you can yes. just lose yourself in Kenny Rogers' beard, and you know everything's going to be mm. just as it was. I was just saying, he's trundled on the way they trundled on the governor of the Bank of England after the Brexit thing. You know, to offer a sense <laughs> yes. of like, calm, <laughs> stability, reassurance. Don't worry. Uh, have you seen Kenny Rogers after his plastic surgery? Yeah, he's more terrifying than any of the Sex Pistols. <laughs> yeah, he overdid it a smidgen, I think. Just a bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But I love that they talk about the weather. It's like how, how, you know, how British mm. is that? It's just, they, they, you know, let's talk about, that's a comforting thing, isn't it? Oh, it's, a, you know, it, it was extremely yeah. hot. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. And they're not even British, yeah, more right. British than the British. They're not, I know. Yeah. Well, when in Rome. <laughs> he didn't say anything about how nice our policemen were, though, but, you know, we'll, we'll let him off. Oh, it's so awkward, though, isn't it? Because it's like, well, you know, what, yeah, what is he doing here? And what, what, <laughs> what's the point of this? I think it was to promote. Um, his, he was promoting his gigs, and the BBC was probably filming summer, or or he just thought, you know, fuck it, BBC bar, they'll let me in. Let's get pissed up. I've been in Saudi Arabia. I just want to get fucking battered. We can't say goodbye without having you, a former number one record holder, introducing this week's number one record. That's right, hot chocolate. So you win again. And you will. Here they are for week number three in the number one position. The fabulous hot chocolate, isn't it? Hot chocolate. So You Win Again, Hot Chocolate. Formed in Brixton in 1968, signed to Apple Records a year later when John Lennon heard their reggae version of Give Peace a Chance. They became the only band to score a chart in every year of the 70s. And this is pretty much... Well, well it's the third week that it's been at number one, but it's it, to me, this is the archetypal mid-70s number one, isn't it? You've got strings, you've got the electric guitars that sound like sitars. And, you know, this is all right, isn't it? Yeah, it's lovely. It's lovely. I mean, it's this is kind of everything that you that you wanted the real thing to be. I suppose it's just you know, it's it's mm. this is where you really notice the difference in kind of songwriting chops and and just kind of musicality. You know, it's just. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the, like I say, it's a band absolutely eased themselves, and the country was absolutely eased with Hot Chocolate and Errol Brown. It's almost like, and genuinely perhaps forgetting about the whole race thing, considering that. Hot Chocolate started off with what was like the kind of the Love Thy Neighbour, popsequent to Love Thy Neighbour with his brother Louis, wasn't it? And all this stuff about no honkies in my house and all that kind of stuff. And totally, you know, sort of mournful song about racial antagonism. I mean, Errol Brown just completely transcends that and he just becomes, you know, just once and forever this figure in his own right. And um... Excellent. So this was their final week at number one with, and replaced by I Feel Loved by Donna Summer. Uh, they go on to have a chart hit every year up to 1984. Errol Brown left the group in 1986, uh, sang Imagine at the Tory party conference, which, you know, we could have a, an hour-long discussion about the merits of that and the, the, pro, the pros and cons. <laughs> Decon- oh, God, yeah, totally. That. I mean, I, I, I'm glad because it kind of, like, destroyed a horrible song forever. But anyway, the group eventually replaced him in the 90s with someone who did Errol Brown on Stars in Their Eyes, underlined in my notes, according to Wikipedia. That's, that sounds too good to be true to me. yeah. And so endeth another week of Chart Toppers. We hope you've enjoyed it and that you'll join us again next week for more Top of the Pops. From me, Kid Jensen, have a good week and good love. There we go. Uh, Kim Jensen takes us out with fanfare for the common man by Emerson, Lake and Palmer, but we'll give it as much shrift as this episode did. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll be returning to it another time. So, Max Bygrave says, I want to tell you a story on BBC One afterwards. ITV's Halfway Through Charlie's Angels. It's the one where the killer's extorting massage parlour owners and the angels end up having to rub oil into various overweight perverts. <laughs> and it's also the last episode with Farrah Fawcett Majors because she, her character goes off to become a racing driver because that's what women did in the 70s. And then... Yeah. Yeah, and then it's the episode of The Cuckoo Waltz where Fliss wants a new washing machine. Oh, the entertainment. So, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow about this episode? 
Well, the pistols, obviously. Oh, would have mm. to be, wouldn't it? Really, mm. I mean, just Abs- absolutely, absolutely, sex pistols. Um, yeah, it, it would you have remembered anything else from that episode? Um, by the next morning, this is well, look, I might have been because I did, I actually was talking in an actual playground in the end. It was all about sex pistols. Um, because I think that the uh, astonishment now I'm utterly astonished by um, jigsaws. I'm deeply impressed by the saints. But um, but no, Sex Pistols, absolutely. Would have been a bit of a badge of honour, surely, to have seen the Sex Pistols, because maybe, um, surely some people, some, some kids would have been prevented from seeing it, like, oh, no, you oh, can't. But maybe the dad's kicked the telly in before. Yeah, yeah, or just tipped the bathwater over it, you know, just, just to make yes. sure <laughs> that you couldn't see it. So it's extraordinary. You say the Pistols, and then next week you just say Donna Summer, and they were the two things. So there was the, two, the, the dual, the, you know, the dual revolutions of 1977, are just about there, you know. This is almost like, you know, um, you know, these are the kind of the calm blue skies before the kind of the dual sort of catastrophe, as it were. You know, I think is what's represented by this particular top of the pops. This is what um, both the Sexpits and Donna Summer came to smite in their very different ways. Yes, yeah, definitely, okay. definitely. But yeah. pretty good that we chose this episode. You know, it was it was chosen at random. Okay, so that is pretty much it for this episode of Chart Music. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, we're, uh, we've got a Facebook group, facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast. Fuck Twitter, I'm not arsed with it. And yes, there'll be a video playlist on YouTube. I'll probably end up going on Twitter, but I, don't, I really don't want to. No, fuck Twitter. Um, and, as, uh, and as Kid Jensen said, um, when he, he wishes uh, our parents um, that they have really good sex tonight after the show... All it remains for me to say is thank you very much, David Stubbs. Thank, thank you. you very much, Sarah thank B. Much. Thank you very much, everyone who's listening to this. Hope you enjoy it. Hope you enjoy the next one. And good love. Love. Nice love. <laughs> 70s love. None of this modern love. <laughs> Chart music. What? Great Big Owl. Stop saying that. What about Great Big Owl? It's a family of podcasts. Ooh. Who's in this family? Well, there's Rule of Three. That's us. (laughs) There's Brian and Roger. 
Hi, Roger. It's Brian. There's the The One Show Show. There's oh, nowhere else nice. you would find a, a four or five minute film about Pine Martins. Yes. Without a sight of one Pine Martin at all in the film. There's Barry and Angelos. Oh, uh, Gooch, 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 Yeah. Remember that lovely one. And there's Smirchpod. Could you eat first? I think we know. <sighs> well, I know. I don't know if I want to eat Lazenby. Basically, look for Great Big Owl on your pod. What's it? Good idea. Have we got a sting? Owls don't sting. Great Big.